This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Guy Boivin, an infectious disease specialist and the head of the Virology Laboratory at the Research Center in Infectious Diseases at Laval University in Quebec, Canada. We'll be discussing viral interference between respiratory viruses. Welcome, Dr. Boivin. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Doing well, thank you. So glad to have you here. In your article, you talk about viral interference. Tell us what that is. Well, there is viral interference when there's an infection by a first virus, let's say rhinovirus causing common cold, and the first virus reduce or prevent the infection by a second virus. For example, the flu virus, the influenza virus. So this is a negative interaction, also called viral interference. One needs to remember, though, that there are plenty of respiratory viruses. In addition to the rhinoviruses and influenza we just mentioned, there's also the common coronaviruses, as well as SARS-CoV-2, responsible for COVID-19. And there's a parainfluenza virus, human metapneumovirus, adenovirus, RSV, and so on. And co-infection with more than one respiratory virus is not that rare, especially in young children. So there's a lot of interaction that could occur in the respiratory tract. And these can have a positive or a negative outcome. I see. Okay, so your article says that viral interference has been demonstrated at the cellular, host, and population levels. What are the differences between those? Well, let's start with the population level. You should suspect viral interference when an epidemic or a pandemic virus like SARS-CoV-2 affects the normal circulation or the spread of another virus. And then you just have, again, to think about SARS-CoV-2 pandemic virus that completely or almost completely shut down most other respiratory viruses over the pandemic. So when you suspect this phenomenon to occur in the population, you want to confirm that. And then you either cell culture or animal model. And in these animal models, you can control the condition of the infection, control the time between each infection, for example, 24, 48, or 72 hours apart. And the outcome is controlled also. You look at viral load, if it is reduced or increased. How and when was this concept first discovered? Believe it or not, Sarah, this concept was developed in the late 50s, early 60s by Russian investigators. In particular, there's a lady, Dr. Voroshilova. She developed a live attenuated enterovirus vaccine. Enterovirus are virus that can infect the central nervous system and replicate in the gastrointestinal tract. So these investigators attenuated enterovirus vaccine strain. They immunized the patient and they show that they can protect with their vaccine against pathogenic enteroviruses such as polio. But what was unexpected, they also reduced the number of respiratory viral infection in those children. So that was amazing. And this concept got a little bit forgotten for a couple of decades. And then there was renewed interest into viral interference with the pandemic. Does viral interference affect only certain respiratory viruses? You mentioned so many. Yeah, I would say yes. Not all respiratory viruses induce interference, at least not to the same extent. And furthermore, there might be interference in one direction, but not necessarily in the other direction. Let me explain that. If you start with an infection with influenza virus and then come up with an infection by SARS-CoV-2 a few days later, you'll see that influenza reduce the replication of SARS-CoV-2 compared to single infection. But when you start with SARS-CoV-2 followed by influenza, 
you don't have necessarily this viral interference phenomenon. And because there are plenty of respiratory viruses, not all viral combinations have been tested and they have not been tested certainly in both ways. So there's still a lot to learn about this concept in respiratory viruses. What about other viruses? You mentioned polio and gastrointestinal viruses. So how does that work? Can interference occur with those as well? In what way? Like we mentioned, the concept of viral interference was discovered by testing enteroviruses, which replicate in the gastrointestinal tract. But this being said, there have been much less studies devoted to gastrointestinal viruses, such as neuroviruses or rotaviruses. But I do not see why it could not exist in the gastrointestinal viruses as well. Why this, this concept of viral interference exists only in respiratory and not in gastrointestinal viruses. I think this is a concept that is a general concept that would apply to both respiratory and gastrointestinal viruses although there are less research regarding the latter viruses. How does viral interference affect the spread of respiratory viruses? Yeah, here we come to the mechanism of viral interference. And the main mechanism underlying this concept is the production of a certain types of molecules that we call interferon by our cells in response to a viral infection. In fact, there are many types of interferon, and they can be seen as a non-specific broadly a reactive natural antiviral and the interferon is induced again when our cells recognize a threat and by a threat it could be a virus or it could be a cancer cell. So the infected cells and the cells in the neighborhood will start secretion of interferon but that doesn't last forever, that lasts for a certain period of time and then it's waning. So virus-virus interactions can either be negative or positive. What exactly does this mean? Compared to a single virus infection, co-infection with two viruses can be seen as negative, which is antagonistic interaction or viral interference, or positive, either additive or synergistic. So a positive interaction, and by the way, that's not the focus of our article, but a positive interaction would mean that a greater viral replication for potentially the two viruses resulting in potentially more severe clinical outcome. What triggers a negative virus interaction compared to a positive one? Well, it depends probably on several factors. You still do not know the right answer to this important question, sir. But among the reported factors that could play a role in these interactions, there is first the capacity for a virus to induce production of interferon. Some virus induce greater production for more rapid production of interferon than others. The time interval between the two viral infections, is it simultaneously or sequentially, uh, how many days apart, and also the facility of certain viruses to evade or neutralize the interferon response. In particular, there are viruses such as influenza and SARS-CoV-2 that have developed more mechanism to neutralize interferon response. I think you mentioned earlier that a flu reduces COVID, but COVID does not reduce flu symptoms. Not necessarily. There are a couple of studies that have shown that the interference between influenza and SARS-CoV-2 was bilateral. There are other studies that have not reported the same, that there was unilateral viral interference between influenza and SARS-CoV-2. So I would say that the jury is still out. Okay, all right. Do positive interactions make treating the virus more difficult? Well, I would say in a sense, yes, because viral load will be increased probably for the two viruses with potentially 
more uh, secretion of inflammatory molecules that we call cytokines or chemokines. And furthermore, there are animal studies that show the positive interaction between flu and SARS-CoV when the two viruses are inoculated in the animal simultaneously. But there's viral interference when flu precedes SARS-CoV in a sequential infection. So the positive or negative interaction depends highly on the timing of the infection by the two viruses. Is testing for two concurrent respiratory viruses more difficult than testing for just one? Well, I would say these days not really, because most hospitals have been using, uh, since the pandemic, upfront and multiplex PCR tests. And these tests can rapidly detect more than 15 or 20 viral pathogens at a time in less than one hour and a half. And these multiplex assays reveal that co-infection were more frequent than we thought previously. In up to 10% of adults, we can see a co-infection in the respiratory tract, and up to 30% co-infection in young children have been reported. Oh, that's actually very interesting. You talk about refractory period where a person is less likely to be infected by another respiratory virus. How long does this refractory period usually last? And does it vary with viruses or, say, environmental conditions? Yeah, you're right. It depends on the model you look at. If you start with in vitro cell culture experiment, you infect the human cells with one virus and then after a few days with another virus. This refractory or interference period could last for a few days. If you are using the ferret, a small animal model, to look at viral interference, you see that this refractory period could last up to a week. But when you come up to population, human population, it's far more complex to estimate because in that situation, the infections are not synchronized like we do in animals or in cell culture. And there are also some confounders effects by the environmental conditions such as the temperature and the humidity that you need to take into account. This being said, a few researchers have tried to look at this refractory period in epidemiologic studies and they reported that the interference could last a couple of weeks in human population. But I would say that certainly more studies are needed to define this refractory period. Well, what factors can contribute to there being an interference between respiratory viruses? Well, probably we don't know all the factors again, but the one that we mentioned a bit earlier, the propensity of a virus to trigger the induction of interferon and the rapidity of induction of interferon is different depending on the viruses. And certainly, secondly, the susceptibility of a virus to the effect of interferon. I mentioned that some viruses have developed means of neutralizing interferon response. And thirdly, I would say the time interval between the two infections. This being said, besides interferon response, there are also other less well-studied factors that may play a role in viral interference. I would give an example here like reduction of cellular receptors. The first virus occupies all the cellular receptors. Second virus cannot enter the cell. It could be also competition for cellular resources by the two viruses and so on. COVID-19 and flu infections, as we've talked about, can occur in a person at the same time. How does viral interference come into play in this situation? Well, viral interference may explain partially why there has been no real influenza epidemic during the COVID-19 pandemic, so means for two, the past two years. I think that there are more than sanitary or mitigation uh, measures to explain this 
absence of the influenza epidemics. So that's why I think that virus interference may play a role and may explain in part what's going on right now, which is really unusual. In my 25-year career as a virologist, never seen skipping an influenza epidemic in the winter season. Uh, and that happened almost twice during the past two years. That's really fascinating about no flu. That's been something of a lot of interest. I was sort of thinking that it was because of social distancing and masking and all the other strategies that were in place for COVID. But do you think something else might be going on biologically? Yeah, I think so, because other respiratory viruses were delayed by SARS-CoV-2, but were not eliminated. For instance, the respiratory syncytial virus activity was delayed by a few months with the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic virus. But in influenza, there was no delay. There was absence of epidemic. I would like to add also the fact that uh, the uh, interference could be in the other way around. So those who had flu at the onset of the pandemic had 50% less chances to test positive for COVID-19 in the few months subsequently. This being said, I think it's too early to fight COVID-19 with flu, but maybe, and that's what we discussed in our article, maybe a defective influenza particle, an attenuated influenza particle could be of potential benefit to fight against a pandemic virus before we get a good vaccine. What's unique about HRV and SARS-CoV-2? So HRV are human rhinoviruses. In contrast to most other respiratory viruses, they continue to circulate despite the mitigation or sanitary measure put in place during the pandemic. And one biological reason for that is that uh, rhinoviruses are non-enveloped viruses in contrast to most other respiratory viruses. That means that they are more resistant to disinfectants such as ethanol and mask does not protect as well against rhinoviruses than against the other respiratory viruses. And when we do experiment in cell culture, human cell culture, rhinovirus impairs the replication of SARS-CoV-2, but the opposite is not true. What prompted you to write this article? Well, I was most interested in the observation we discussed that there was virtually no flu activity during the pandemic so far, almost two years now. And this is uh, something I've never seen before in my career as a virologist. So I thought that there was something else playing a role in that absence of flu activity. And that's why I'm become uh, interested in the concept of viral interference. How did you go about collecting the information for your paper? Well, my research associate, Dr. Jocelyn Pierre, and I started to look at all articles dealing with the new pandemic virus, SARS-CoV-2, and influenza first. And then we increased our search to interaction between all respiratory viruses. My biggest surprise, I have to say, came when I found that the concept of uh, interference dated back to the 60s. That was very amazing to me. What are the major public health implications of your findings? Well, one implication is that good knowledge about this phenomenon of viral interference may improve the mathematical models that we use to predict the timing and the magnitude of an epidemic peak or pandemic wave. Also, we discussed that a bit in the paper, the interfering and but still immunostimulatory activities of defective viral particles make them attractive antiviral candidates. So a new class of a broad spectrum antiviral agents that we are discussing. For example, a genetically modified attenuated flu virus could interfere with replication of seasonal flu viruses, but also with that of other 
unrelated viruses such as SARS-CoV-2 so that we can do something about this phenomenon of viral interference that could result in improving our development and design of antiviral, broad antiviral agents. Okay, so kind of along those same lines, that's how you'd like to see this information used moving forward? Do you have anything in specific in mind? Yeah, I think when we talk about co-infection, most people and most scientists will think about positive interaction. The more virus, is a greater viral load, and it will be a negative viral outcome. So I would like that people think that it's not because there's co-infection and that there will be a positive interaction, but you can see also a negative interaction. Which is probably at least as important, if not more important. So tell us about your job, where you work, and what you like most about it. Well, uh, I'm an infectious disease specialist and a researcher in virology. I work with respiratory viruses, but also other viruses such as herpes viruses, which are DNA viruses. And what I like is that I do my clinical and research work in the same place, in the same hospital. And I like switching jobs or switching hats many times during the day. So starting with a meeting with my graduate students and then going in the clinic, seeing a patient and then going back in the lab. Uh, this is very challenging, but very interesting. And being an MD, I always look at clinical application for my research. And working with respiratory viruses, I would say is both stimulating, but also very challenging. And you live in Quebec. What's your favorite thing about living there? Well, everybody knows that could be cold <laughs> during the winter in Quebec, but uh, I like living in Quebec City because I think there are four real different seasons and there's a lot to do in each season. For example, during the fall, there's this nice festival of colors from the maple trees. And during the winter, we always have a lot of snow. So for cross-country skiing, the sport I like a lot is perfect place to practice the sport. During the spring, there's a tasting of maple syrup. You know that uh, Quebec is producing 70% of maple syrup in the world. And I will finish by saying that in the summer, we have nice, not too hot, not too humid temperatures. So we can practice a lot of outdoor activities. I know it's supposed to be incredible. I've been there a few times, but incredibly beautiful in the winter. Lots of beautiful lights. Yeah, we have the winter carnival, but with the sanitary measures, we didn't have parades and things like that this year. So it's a shame, but anyway. And I love your maple syrup. In fact, I just gave a little bottle of it to my son-in-law for Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Vauvin. It was my pleasure. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the February 2022 article, Viral Interference Between Respiratory Viruses, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.